Welcome to CNAS Live, a podcast that brings you recordings of public events from the Center for a New American Security. What you're hearing today is a previously recorded conversation, but we invite you to visit cnas.org slash events to learn more about upcoming discussions and ways to connect with us. Good evening, everyone. Thank you so much for joining us tonight. I'm Kayla Williams, Senior Fellow and Director of the Military Veterans and Society Program at the Center for a New American Security. I have been a champion of women veteran authors ever since my own first book came out in 2005. And it has been an absolute joy to see a growing number of women veteran authors get published as the years have gone on, because I think it is so important that we hear from diverse women veterans who have had a variety of different experiences. And that's why I am so excited tonight to host this discussion with Teresa Fazio about her new memoir, Fidelis, and we're very thrilled that she's going to be joined by Matt Gallagher, who has written three books so far, and I can't wait to see more coming from him. So these are both fantastic writers, as well as really genuinely good people that I've had the pleasure of getting to know a bit personally already. I spoke on a panel with Matt, at uh, Annapolis once about his first two books and, and mine, and was impressed by how warm and generous he was both to the students and to me as a fellow author. And I had the great joy of going on a writing retreat with Teresa where I got a sneak peek at a personal essay she published later that was absolutely terrific. And getting to see a little bit behind the curtain of another writer's process was really terrific. So I'm confident that this is going to be a really exciting conversation. You're gonna learn a lot about her memory memoir, and also, I hope, about her, her life and her writing process as well. Please check out the link in the chat. We are happy to bring you this event in conjunction with Bronx River Books, and there will be a link in the chat box where you can go to purchase your own copy of Fidelis. So again, thank you so much for joining CNAS for this wonderful event tonight. I'm going to turn it over now to Matt Gallagher. Hi, everyone. Uh, Kayla, thank you for that uh, very generous introduction. Uh, thank you to CNIS and Bronx River Books for, for having us. Uh, Teresa, congratulations yeah. on the publication of Fidelis. Thank you. Thanks so much, Matt. And yeah, it's really great to be talking with you. And thanks again to CNAS and Kayla and Bronx River. So. Yeah, it's, uh, it's such a tremendous book. It's, it's real. It's, um, it's honest. It's incredibly, incredibly sharply written. Um, there's just some uh, beautiful moments of poetry in there. Uh, so I, you know, I, ho I hope we can get into it all uh, in this evening's discussion. Uh, real briefly, I just wanted to give attendees uh, a, a little glimpse into, into our friendship. Uh, I, I had to go back into uh, my Google inbox to figure out when we first met each other. Oh, wow. uh, and it was uh, January 2014. Um, uh, and we just started a workshop up here in Brooklyn called Words After War, which was half veteran and half civilian. It was hosted at the only space that would have us at the time, uh, this super hipster community library deep in Bushwick. Uh, and they were, they were great, but they were the only people that would, would uh, for free put up uh, uh, cranky veterans and civilians who wanted to talk uh, this, you know, not, not the most light, lighthearted subject uh, in the world. And you uh, were one of, one of the first uh, uh, to sign up. In fact, you signed up uh, uh, the morning of January 1st, 2014. Oh, wow. And I don't know where I was, uh, but I certainly was not uh, signing up for writing workshops that morning. 
Uh, and uh, you know, I, I'm sure you were on your way to uh, once a marine, always a marine. You're probably uh, getting ready for a six mile run. Yeah. PT, yeah, polar bear swim, something like that, probably. <laughs> Sure. Uh, but, you know, even then, um, uh, you know, when uh, your writing so impressed me because uh, you were interested in uh, interrogating your own, your own experience. You were scrutinizing your own memories. Uh, you weren't using your writing as, uh, as a declaration of your own rightness, which can uh, unfortunately happen sometimes in, in uh, military uh, writing and, and veterans writing, particularly with, with folks just transitioning out of the service. And, and while that's completely understandable, uh, it doesn't make for uh, good reading or good writing, uh, your work was immediately different. There was a freshness to it. There was a vitality to it. So I'm just really so excited to see Fidelis uh, out, out in the world uh, and, and eager to, to dive into the particulars uh, uh, of it with you this evening. Uh, so first, um, just kind of a, a general question, you know, for attendees who are maybe not so familiar with, with you or your background or, or how Fidelis came to be, uh, tell us a bit about yourself uh, and, and the process of writing the book. Sure. No, absolutely. Um, it actually took me a while to be able to process all of the events of the book. So I guess briefly about me, um, I joined the Marine Corps um, as a, an ROTC, you know, midshipman in 1998. So pretty September 11th, I did Naval ROTC in the Boston area. It paid for me to go to MIT as an undergrad and my senior year, September 11th, 2001 happened. And I graduated into a very different world than the one that I thought I would be entering as a newly minted Marine officer. Um, so y'all can read the book. I deployed to Iraq, some things happened, came home, some more things happened. And uh, I, in the process of writing the book, took actually a, a very long time to even germinate. So um, I was in grad school through the, the latter half of the aughts. And I finally graduated um, from graduate school in 2011. And uh, it took that entire like six year graduate program to really um, be able to get ready to write about my experience in Iraq. And um, you know, it, it, it took that time for me to be able to even decide to start writing because I had done like technical stuff uh, professionally throughout my entire career beforehand. And uh, it was sort of one, I, I like to tell the story that, you know, the guy in Fight Club, he goes around to all the like support groups uh, and fakes his way in. I felt like I was doing that with all of these veterans writing groups. So I, I really was a veteran and I really did want to write, but I found, I think yours was maybe the, the second one I had found in New York City. And I did the NYU one beforehand and then Voices for War at the 14th Street Y afterwards. So there was a period of time where it was like three veterans writing workshops a week and just kind of like go big or go home. And I made a, a timeline finally and was able to scrape the whole story out of my chest that way. Um, and once I did that, it came pouring out and then needed lots of help from folks like Matt Gallagher to, uh, to help me make some edits and, you know, give things a read and, and give some really good advice. So that was kind of how that, that all started. Well, you, you were already uh, well, well on your way, uh, oh, but that's, that's kind of you to say. Uh, you know, one of the first things um, I thought about when I finished Fidelis uh, uh, a couple months back was, you know, it's a war book. Absolutely. You know, much of uh, much of the setting is 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 in Iraq. And, and um, you know, uh, you were you were over there kind of when the, the post invasion uh, civil war starts breaking out and uh, uh, soldiers, and Marines on the ground are, are realizing this is it's not going to be kind of a sh the short war that that had been uh, promised. Um, uh, it's a coming of age story as well. Uh, uh, you know, it's uh, about a young woman uh, finding herself both in uniform and out of uniform. But uh, kind of a recurring 
theme that really propels this book uh, throughout, uh, over there, back here, uh, before you before you join the Marines, during the Marines, and, and certainly after, are these kind of these ideas, these themes of power and agency. And I, I wanted to talk to you a bit about about that. You know, what particularly kind of focusing on your experience in the Marines um, with power and agency, and and how it how those things relate to to gendered power dynamics. Uh, what were your expectations going in to the Marines? Uh, uh, how did you find find it? And what do you think now as, as, a, as a powerful veteran's voice on these issues? Sure, absolutely. Um, a lot to unpack in the question, so I'll, I'll do the best I can chronologically in the order you asked it. But um, I guess what I thought going into the Marines is I didn't think much about gender at all, and here's why. I grew up with a lot of brothers. I have three younger brothers, assorted older step-siblings. Um, and so I had grown up just like, playing with boys on the playground, fighting with my brothers at home. We're, we're very close in age, at least three of us are. And so it was like this just litter of puppies, just all wrestling all the time. So I grew up in a very, very male-coded sort of environment. And that became my coping mechanism to just make my way through the world and claim power. Um, I also thought, uh, like I joined the Marines because it was hard and I guess there's a bit of masochism there um, But they were also able to sort of make use of of my brain I was lucky to get into a technical specialty having had a technical education and I so I wasn't going in with the thought that like I really wanted to go infantry or combat arms or anything like that um, I was like well, I wanted to do the Marine Corps because it's hard, but they say they can use my brain So let's learn about this communications gear um, so you know then being in the Marine Corps, uh, I just sort of tried to, as best I could, which maybe I was not very successful at, but shut off a lot of that, like I would just make myself as much like the men around me as I could. Now, I'm five foot one, I'm tiny, um, but I, I had short hair and glasses, so I, I like to joke it was like Harry Potter goes to war. Uh, it was the early aughts, so Harry Potter was big. Um, and, you know, I really didn't, start thinking about femininity consciously until I got out of the Marine Corps. Now this did me a huge disservice because it meant that in the Marine Corps, very, you know, traditionally male warrior culture, um, many elements of which we would now call toxic masculinity, but that anger is the only emotion you're allowed to show. You know, you pack any sort of emotions away because they're weak. Um, you show no weakness, there's zero tolerance for defects you know, everything is your responsibility. You have to be perfect and strong all the time. And strength is the ultimate ideal for which to strive. And I totally tracked with that because, um, you know, I'd also grown up in a house with a chaotic divorce and, you know, sometimes things get really hard. And, uh, you know, that was my way of claiming power too, just being like, look, I can be strong. This entire institution will help me to be strong. What that means in terms of gender power is, unfortunately, in the gender binary, at least in Western culture, um, if you want to date as a heterosexual woman, you have to be able to show at least a bit of vulnerability. And so that was really difficult, or at least dating openly was really difficult. Um, you know, they would tell us, our sergeant instructors told us at officer candidate school, if you're a woman in the, and these are female sergeant instructors, uh, and many of us have written about this, if you're a woman in the Marine Corps, you're either a bitch, a dyke, or a hoe. And that's it, those are your only options. I tried to weasel out of it as best I could because I had a lot of brothers, I knew what it was like to be a sister. I knew what it was like to be an older sister to my younger Marines. I knew what it was like to be a little sister to say like, you know, the, the very senior enlisted and like the captains and the majors and stuff as I was a young lieutenant. 
And this works if you're young and junior. If I had stayed in longer, um, this would not have worked. If I, I couldn't have taken company command by being in that mode, I would have had to take more of a leadership role, which again is male coded and plenty of women do that very, very well. And it's fantastic. Um, it just, I, those were sort of the power dynamics and the gender dynamics I was wrestling with at the time. So, yeah. Um, lot, lot to, uh, follow up there, but my first sure. question is, uh, which house, Harry Potter house were you? Oh man. So yeah, I certainly Gryffindor. I mean, I think, uh, at heart, I am a Gryffindor. I probably appear like a Ravenclaw, but I think I'm a Gryffindor at heart. I mean, who knows, who knows what the sorting hat would tell us. Uh, if you have access, let me know. That's, that's <laughs> good point. That's a good point. Yeah. I, I think most, uh, uh, most people that served, especially Marines, uh, uh, probably their instinct is to go Gryffindor and then writers, uh, tend to, tend to, uh, go rip Ravenclaw. So, uh, awesome. not surprised, not surprised that you're torn, torn between those two <laughs> houses. Um, so, you, you know, you've been out uh, a couple years now, uh, and, um, uh, become kind of a powerful voice, uh, on, on these issues, uh, as a writer, as a thinker, you know, you've, you've written essays, um, uh, uh, on me too and Marines United scandal for places like the New York times, Rolling Stone, the nation, uh, uh, from your vantage point as a, as a, uh, Iraq war veteran, as a Marine veteran, um, uh, as someone with a, a powerful voice and platform, uh, has, has the military improved, uh, at all with some of these gender power dynamic questions? Um, if so, where, um, and where, where is it still lagging? Um, sure. Um, so I think it is much more exposed now. So the fact that we're having the conversation, I think culture, has improved in general in American culture. At least we can talk about some of these things about gender power. Um, you know, bearing in mind, 15 years ago when I was serving, it was under don't ask, don't tell. Uh, you know, people would make gay jokes all the time. You would, you would say tons of things that now, you know, I think back to some of the jokes that were made and the things that were said, I was like, man, that would not fly at all. Um, and, and you know what, I, I haven't been in in a while and people are probably still saying that. Um, there are certainly still, as we're even seeing, you know, this summer with the murder of Vanessa Guillen, like just so many issues that are still coming out of the woodwork and coming to the forefront. So it's by no means solved. I think the fact that things like that are making the national news now, that there are voices um, politically and activist wise, you know, things like Service Women's Action Network did not exist when, you know, you and I were in. Um, and so I think that is an improvement people being called to task about it. Um, so that something like Marines United making national news, making the press, and at least top down, having the Commandant at the time take that on as an issue. Now, there is certainly still plenty of work to be done, as we are seeing. Um, certainly still many, many issues. Uh, and it change also has to come from the bottom up, from those young troops and those young officers who are making those rules. And, you know, you and I are both active on Twitter. We see a lot of things, um, you know, from folks still serving and like, it's not necessarily the greatest environment still. So lots of work still needs to be done. And it's a, a large matter of it is small unit leadership too. Um, and remembering that folks who are those small unit leaders are very young. Uh, I, you know, man, it makes me feel old now. I went, um, when I was reporting from Sweden in 2018, I realized, and this is terrifying, but 
I was there with a bunch of conscripts. So they're all like 18, 19 years old. And they're like doing the math. And I'm like, wait a minute, I'm old enough to be your mom. Oh, oh that is not cool. Um, <laughs> so yeah, anyway, tons of work still needs to be done. I think the exposure is good that we're acknowledging it's a problem, but it's got to be acknowledged as a problem in the military too. So yeah, well, well said, and um, also well said about uh, uh, how young uh, the volunteers are these days. Uh, you know, young young privates, young uh, young uh, ROTC cadets now uh, have been born after nine eleven. That's crazy. And you know, I, and I think that's that's something else. Uh, uh, hopefully, this is a smoothish transition to my oh, next sure. section. <laughs> sure. uh, um, you know, there's something so honest and candid uh, about your voice in Fidelis, right? Um, you don't portray uh, uh, yourself or, or the Marines um, in kind of a stock way. Uh, it's the good, the bad, and the ugly. And, and you know, that, that, rings tr that rang true uh, to, my, uh, uh, to my reading eye because these are really young people uh, dealing with matters of, of life and death and, and serious consequence day in and day out. And uh, uh, sometimes it's going to uh, bring out a lot of moments of true heroism and, uh, and other times it's, it's going to show, you know, darker, messier parts of, of the human condition. Uh, this is, you know, it's a question that uh, uh, I get um, when writing uh, nonfiction and, and you're going to be get you've already gotten it, I'm sure, and you're definitely going to be getting it in the months and years to come. Where does kind of that uh, intellectual courage come from uh, to, to portray um, yourself in, in that fullness, to portray people that you care about in that fullness. You know, I mean, the, the emotional core of Fidelis is, is, a, uh, is a friendship and, and, and a, uh, a bit more that uh, you develop with a, with a warrant officer um, named Jack uh, o o over in Iraq. Uh, you know, for, for a lot of people, who, even who want to write, uh, they, they struggle uh, with, with kind of writing about how it really was. What was that journey like for you? And then what advice would you give to somebody that, that is really kind of grappling with, with where to find that kind of intellectual courage? Sure. Um, no, thanks. Thanks for the compliment. Uh, so, you know, it was difficult getting to the core of that in the beginning. And I think for so long, probably the better part of a decade, I needed to become honest with myself. And that even before I had started writing, I needed to process you know, what that was, what that entire experience was. Um, there were parts of it, parts of that memoir, I was not done living until uh, the very, until the last draft, you know? Uh, and so, and that's the hard part about nonfiction is you need to relentlessly interrogate yourself before you can really decide how you're gonna portray a relationship with anybody else in the text. Um, similarly, you know, other folks who were portrayed in the memoir, uh, not just him, but also my family, fellow people I served with, friends, they don't get a choice as to how they're portrayed. And I tried to be as conscientious as I could with um, being kind to them as possible. And that required processing a lot in relationships with them, relationships with my parents. Um, you know, that, that required digging pretty deep within myself and knowing that after I published the book, like I, I still have a family, which is pretty cool. Uh, they've been awesome, uh, <laughs> which is nice. But, um, but you know, uh, recognizing that I'm the person I have to look in the mirror every morning and live with. So can I live with both that being out there? Um, can I live with the way that I have portrayed that? And, um, you know, you kind of, you only get the one life. So part of me is like, well, stick my finger in the socket and see what happens now. But um, 
I, and I highly recommend if there's any other way you can process anything in your life, like don't write nonfiction. <laughs> like I admire fiction writers a lot and, and who knows, I'm, I, I toy around with it. Maybe I'll write some in the future. Um, but, uh, but yeah, at first I had actually wanted to write this as fiction. I'm like, I'll just write sto short stories and vignettes and like, that'll be fine. And nobody has to know like what really happened. It's fine. I'll just write some short stories. And, and, you know, I'd think about that, that key relationship. And I was like, well, no, I can't possibly write about that. No, no. And soon it was the only thing I can write about. And, uh, I just made a timeline and, and let it go. And, uh, that, that's, that's what happened. So. Yeah, no, I'm, and I mean, uh, you know, the, the writing pops because of it, right? Uh, there, there's something about letting it rip that, uh, that, show, that shows in the work. And, and, you know, you can tell, uh, I'm sure we've all had this experience as readers, you can kind of tell when a writer's pulling their punches um, and, and the work sure. suffers for it. Uh, so, uh, uh, I'm, you know, uh, luckily, uh, Fidelis, you, you let it rip and it, it's, it's honest and, 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 and genuine that way. Uh, you know, something, you know, you and I have talked about uh, a decent amount offline um, that, you know, why not talk about in front of uh, uh, <laughs> uh, CNIS attendees uh, is, uh, you know, not just the role of, of war literature and contemporary culture, but, you know, maybe why it is that, you know, I'd say probably a, a healthy majority of uh, the modern war writers that have emerged, both veteran and civilian, uh, look like me, right? And, and, or, you know, have a, have a similar basic biography as me. Uh, uh, in terms of kind of straight white dude, um, uh, you know, served, served, served a few years and, and came back. Uh, you know, you're kind of, you and Kayla uh, are uh, certainly powerful exceptions to that. Um, where do you, where do you see, you know, war writing fitting in, uh, in general fitting in uh, contemporary American culture? And then really specifically uh, uh, writing by, uh, uh, not, not just women, but, uh, you know, authors of color, uh, people from kind of, uh, more traditional backgrounds, because, you know, that's, that's the military I remember serving, serving in. They, uh, not everybody looked, looked like me or thought like me. Uh, uh, is that something that's maybe, maybe changing, uh, for the better, hopefully? What do you think? Sure. No, absolutely. I think as there's, um, more of a push to embrace diversity in the wider American culture, we can, broaden our idea of what a service member looks like. So I think the first crop, yes, does look like you and has similar experiences to you because oh, they don't that's- have, they don't have such good hair. Well, exactly, yeah. Wait, did you call it your plague shag earlier? Yeah, I did. Yeah, yeah. nice, <laughs> <laughs> that's awesome. COVID does crazy things to us all. Um, but you're looking squish. <laughs> I appreciate that, thank you. <laughs> sure. Um, but no, I think, you know, the American trope, you know, what's every Hollywood movie, you know, from the, the 1930s onward until kind of now-ish has been, uh, you know, white combat arms, American hero, sure. and maybe, you know, started being switched up in the 80s with some folks of color, maybe started being switched up around G.I. Jane era, and was that late, mid to late 90s, something like that. Um, so we're inching our way forward, but yeah, definitely we still need more diversity. I mean, most of my troops were not white, you know, Mo most of my troops um, and my colleagues didn't go to the fancy schools. Like, I think some of the reasons folks like us are getting published is because we have access or we move to big cities for graduate educations. And that's great, but we do need to democratize uh, more of these platforms. And to that effect, different veterans writing workshops have been really cool in showcasing like who has some natural talent and perhaps until there was a really distributed workshop um, like warrior writers or similar uh, performance-based ones, 
you know, who can really get some, some exposure and some training. Um, and I think that trend definitely should continue. You know, we've had it, clearly an entire movement this summer uh, devoted to Black Lives Matter and lifting up folks of color and, you know, BIPOC folks. And uh, we should absolutely hear those voices. Um, folks across the gender spectrum and the sexuality spectrum too, you know, like Don't Ask, Don't Tell has been lifted. Uh, trans ban has, you know, was implemented and then went back and back and forth on that, you know, and, and we'll see what happens in the future. But um, those voices definitely need to be lifted up and exposed. And as far as where I think war writing is going, in addition to that diversity, I mean, one, but, you know, people keep being interested in it because we're still at war, even though we don't like to call it that all the time after since September 11th, 2001. So in a couple of years, that war is going to be old enough to drink. Um, you know, it's already old enough to vote, right? And, uh, and I think folks are becoming, with all of the upheaval in the world, a bit more empathetic, at least in pockets, to the other side. I mean, we have an entire refugee crisis now. There are all these different facets of the wars in Syria and Iraq and with ISIS. And, you know, they're still coming to places um, the, the whole refugee crisis, you know, what is, what is that if not uh, stoked by war? So, I mean, I think worldwide, you know, there's got to be a lot more done with war literature, sadly. I'm, I'm hoping for some peace and love literature, too. So. Yeah, yeah, it's, I mean, like Tim O'Brien's famous line of, he, he doesn't like being considered a war writer because he considers himself a peace writer. Uh, you know, mm -hmm. I, I think uh, that's something that a, a lot of us uh, can understand and appreciate, uh, uh, though also, see the futility perhaps in it yeah. uh, uh you know i'm i'm, I'm uh, interested that you brought up black, uh, black lives matter you know because uh because certainly for, for all of us uh everything you know this this whole summer uh uh it's been you know ideas of progress and change uh have been uh you know on the forefront and uh you know I, i've been i've been wrestling this with myself the, the idea of uh an importance of narrative uh, in, in times like this. And, uh, you know, I've really, uh, it, it's happened in, in pockets, but I'm going to focus on, on two that have really stuck with me this summer. Uh, and it relates to kind of the civilian military divide, right? Um, uh, the, the national guard, uh, uh, the department of Homeland security gets called out to these protests all over the country. Um, you know, it'd be pretty easy. Uh, and some people do this, uh, uh to kind of stereotype, uh, these folks as, as, as stormtroopers or whatever, um, you know, we're, we're, we're uh, make this a very black and white binary. Um, and two of individuals out of, out of many others have, have really kind of, uh, their stories have resonated with people. I'm thinking of, of the uh, young African-American National Guardsman in DC uh, who was filmed uh, uh, on video chanting with the protesters, I'm black and I'm proud, right? And, and just, uh, 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 you know, while, while, while in uniform, uh, ostensibly, uh, uh, faced off against these protesters. And then the older uh, Navy veteran in Portland uh, who uh, uh, walked up to the uh, Department of Homeland Security agents, uh, asked them if they were honoring their constitutional oath, and, and then proceeded uh, without flinching somehow uh, to, get, to, get, uh, take, uh, to take a hail of nightsticks. And, and you know, uh, in, in very different ways, um, I, I think both, uh, both of those uh, uh, men's experiences and uh, micro stories kind of showed uh, a, the country uh, uh, there's a multitude of experiences and worldviews in in the veteran community in the military community uh, uh, stereotype us at your own at your own peril um, uh, you know some of us 
think this way. Some of us think this way. Some of us vote that way. Some of us vote this way. I, you know, we know this having served ourselves, but, you know, in a time of an all volunteer force, uh, you know, the, the civilian military divide, it's, it's, it's real, it's palpable. Uh, that's a long winded way of me, uh, uh, for me to ask you, uh, what role do you think narrative can play in, in bridging, uh, a military civilian divide in 2020 America, but also what are there limitations to it? I mean, what, what, what can we reasonably expect narrative to, to attain? Uh, in, in, a t in such a polemical time. Yeah, no, absolutely. Um, and I think those are really good points and really vivid scenes that you bring up. I mean, humans are wired for narrative. Like this is why we've developed spoken and written language to like carry that narrative. This is how we communicate. And there's no faster, easier way to convey that message than by making whatever sort of narrative you're telling or creating resonate emotionally with somebody else. And so I think, you know, many people, like maybe folks of color who haven't served in the military might see that young black service member like chanting along with them and, and finally see like, oh wait, they're not all like on one end of the political spectrum. Um, or possibly, you know, I mean, who knows what was happening in the hearts, minds, and consciences, uh, consciences of those DHS folks who beat down the Navy guy. Um, also, I guess I should put in as a Marine a plug for Naval Academy football there because I heard he was a football player, but yeah, yeah. Uh, I didn't go to the academy, so whatever. Um, but uh, but anyway, who knows what was happening in their hearts and minds, but like maybe his question got through, maybe it didn't. His question definitely got through to the greater public who is seeing now, hey, not all service members are in lockstep, you know, with this, this far-right conservative agenda. Um, so it's a very good question. I think the limitations are in the hearts of the listener, because if somebody is not willing to listen to a narrative, then there's no way that that can get inside them and resonate with some part of them. Um, and so you have to, you know, uh, you have to develop compelling narratives, unique narratives. And I think, you know, we all as a culture need to get a bit better at listening, which is that much harder in this age of digital echo chambers. I mean, it's hard. Um, and you and I know it's hard because it's like, oh, we're trying to, to sell books and, you know, it's marketing plans and things like that. But aside from those mercenary reasons, like, it's just hard because technology has enabled us to kind of propagate some of the worst things in human nature, which is the tendency to confirm our own biases and, and reject other people's viewpoints. So I think the more compelling one can make a narrative, the more unique it is, or the more that one can make inroads you know, into really having those hard conversations. I saw two really great threads um, about men being allies. I think one was from Dan Kim, who's an army vet, I think. Um, and, it, you know, it, it means a lot when a guy will stand up on a woman's behalf and be like, no, dude, that wasn't cool. That thing you said to her, no, get out of here with that. It means something when a guy will say that to another guy because it's like, bro, that's not cool. And that's all it takes. But just the willingness to have somebody who looks like you, who talks like you, and is, you know, giving you a piece of their mind, um, that can help carry that narrative forward. Okay, I see. It, that's interesting. Does that make sense? It does, yeah. Uh, it, it, but, you know, what you just said there, uh, you know, you're talking about, you know, confirming our own biases and, and, and being cautious, that's not how most writers think. Uh, that's how an engineer thinks. Right. Uh, yeah. Uh, and I, I was curious, you know, coming, uh, uh, being educated at MIT, um, uh, kind of having a, not just an untraditional uh, education for in 
correct me if I'm wrong, but for, for uh, Marine officers, but, but also for writers, uh, kind of having a, an engineer brain, a mathematically inclined uh, skill set, uh, uh, how did that make you a better, uh, better lieutenant and captain? And, and how has it bettered your writing, do you think? Because oh, uh, um, that, that's, well, that's something I don't, I don't possess whatsoever. Thank you for assuming... <laughs> I Thank mean, you for assuming it's I'm made assuming it better. It I mean, <laughs> it might have made it worse. I don't know. Uh, no, I, I think in the Marine Corps, it helped uh, on two levels. One is uh, because I, I kind of, it took a lot to engage emotionally. And I feel like Marines are kind of like that too. So <laughs> kind of, it, uh, it was a, a very, you know, both fields are, are male dominated. And um, so I just sort of substituted calculus equations for like communications gear. And, and it was uh, fairly similar actually. Um, but no, I, I think, I, and then on another level, like I, I was not combat arms, which I'm pretty upfront about. And so uh, the, you know, Marines will say things like, oh, you had a thousand pound brain or whatever. Well, I was in an occupational specialty where that was actually helpful. Um, so that, it was fun. It was great. I, my Marines were like, you know, just dorky enough to get in the fun kind of trouble most of the time. And, you know, sometimes they got in real trouble and, and we handled that too. Um, but no, I think having the engineering background, sort of like the, the quirky sense of humor, hopefully helps there. Um, and then in the writing, it's, it's, I don't know if it's helped. Uh, it's really had to make me bifurcate my brain. Um, which is nice because I would come home after a full day of work and write, and I'd be using a completely different part of my brain than I was during the day back when I was uh, during the writing of Fidelis. And so, you know, hopefully that helped me have a bit more energy. Um, it meant when I write short stories and I need to like uh, change around something about a character, I will make a matrix of like, okay, here's their gender, here's their occupation, here's the tense and the person we're writing this in, and let's switch it up. And I, I wrote one story, the one that wound up in the road ahead, uh, like three or four times in different voices until it worked. I would not recommend brute forcing something in that way if you have no time, but I had the time, I'd like, you know, get up at five in the morning for an entire summer and then just do that. Um, so yeah, that's that's kind of how that affected that. Uh, I'm sure it'll burn me out eventually. So we'll see uh, how it goes. When you say I, a matrix, uh, I mean, are these just handwritten notes? Are they sticky notes on a wall, like a beautiful mind style? I'm not that cool. Um, <laughs> no, it was like a piece of notebook paper with like a you know consulting style, like two by two, three by three. It okay. was not glamorous at all. I I do in the other room have a. Um, it's a, a whiteboard, well, it's a marker board. It's actually colored black and, and magnetic. And I did outline the entire memoir in like neon hot pink marker there for um, one, one winter while I was like drafting it. And that was kind of fun. Okay. Um, yeah. Uh, so you're a big believer in revision, uh, yeah, which, sure. which I already kind of knew, but now I really know uh, uh, based on your answer there. Um, can you talk about uh, the journey of, through revisions uh, for Fidelis uh, and uh, what's, you know, was there a particular section that you found yourself having to really keep coming back to uh, to get just right because it was so fundamentally important to, to getting this story in this book just correct? Sure. Yeah. No. Um, and, and thank you for, I, I know I've inflicted you with a few of my revisions, so I appreciate that. Um. <laughs> Always a pleasure. Always a pleasure. Thanks. And I would not say that. I, I, I won't lie. I can't say that about all. <laughs> okay. Um, 
Yeah, man. Uh, so I guess it, there, there was plenty, like so much of it. I mean, almost nothing. Maybe the prologue I thought was pretty good right off the bat. And you'll notice that just looks and feels different from the rest of the book. But um, sections involving my family took a ton of revision. And actually, you know, there's probably about 60, 60 finished pages and at least 100 draft pages that were just cut from the book itself. Um, but really processing experiences that had happened, you know, decades ago, like 30 years ago, uh, took a lot of processing and revision and just changing my lens on the way that I viewed them. Um, I was also like doing an MFA program really helped there too, because my instructors helped me to think about it differently. Uh, the first draft of the book was all in the present tense and folks would read it and they're like, uh, look, this is great, but it's exhausting you have to slow down. And so they helped me slow it down. And, you know, they're like, look, when you, when you do things in, in the past tense, you can dilate and you can flash forward into the future and you can flash back into the past. And, you know, so from a craft perspective, that was really helpful. Um, and to be able to, um, you know, just, uh, just really process what was happening emotionally for me in those scenes and to be able to like select the right words um, for things to be able to come through. And then just revision in, in terms of cutting things. Uh, I had this tick for a while where I would say the same thing kind of twice in different ways, and it might have been pretty, but it was kind of useless. And so I, I went through chapters where it's like, cut the second half of that sentence, cut the second half of that sentence. And it was almost like in Catch-22, it's like, now we get rid of all the prepositions. Um, no, I'm kidding, it wasn't like that. But yeah. There, there was a, uh, a trip to a state park at some point. There was. Uh, yeah. Tell us a bit about that. Sure. No, absolutely. Um, this was in, in writing probably what, what turned out to be the first draft. And actually it might've even been, uh, if this is 2014, the, oh no, this was the year before. Um, so it was in writing the first draft and I, I was maybe a third of the way through, halfway through, if that. And uh, I kind of freaked out over when Memorial Day weekend and I was like, I just can't stay in my apartment anymore. I was supposed to go visit my brother and I failed at the last minute. And I was like, I just need to get out of here and like, be alone and I'm gonna work on this book. And so I had had my little, my little timeline. I was like, all right, what are the next chapters? And I drove up to Taconic State Park, uh, which is in upstate New York. And I stayed in the campground there, which was kind of unplanned. And I slept in my car and I stayed up late, um, both reading and working on the memoir. And I spent that whole weekend um, either, you know, at the campsite or I, I ran to a waterfall the next morning, it's lovely. And just kind of traipsing around in a maybe I don't know, 10, 20 mile radius up there, uh, stopping my car at various scenic overlooks and just pecking through just these really, you know, what were for me heartrending and hopefully are slightly less heartrending on the page, but um, pecking through these chapters and uh, really trying to, to get the words right or at least get the thoughts and emotions out of my head. And sometimes as a writer, you have to do that. You have to go to a place, you know, I've known other writers who like, if they can afford it, um, rent a hotel room for several straight days and lock themselves in a hotel room and just, just go. And they're not with the distractions of home and they procure food in other ways and, you know, just, just do it. Um, so yeah, getting out into nature is my big thing. I've written like under trees with acorns falling on me. Um, that's been pretty fun, you know, stuff like that. Yeah, you know, I, not just for writers, but I think for a lot of veterans um, or, you know, people just, uh, the people in general, uh, you know, moving on from, from a big life experience, there's, there's something about dislocating oneself, right. And going someplace new or, or different or unknown, um, to be alone and to, to, you know, if, if, if you're the type of person that wants to do this, interrogate and scrutinize, 
those memories from a from a different angle. Uh, I, I think is 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 very helpful, and it's I I love that story because it's such a uh, it's such a pronounced version of of uh, uh, old writerly advice, right? Uh, <laughs> sure. You know, I know. I mean, like you know, James, yeah. James James Joyce couldn't write about Ireland until he went to France. Yeah. Uh, uh, you, know, <laughs> right. you, you you were able to to get away to a state park for a weekend and and. James Joyce did not write in his car. He he was not that hardcore. <laughs> You've got that one on, on, on the old man. That's for sure. Uh, he didn't have a laptop either. That's true. Well, that's true. <laughs> he had an advantage there. Um, I only have a couple more questions. So for sure. folks listening, uh, uh, feel free to type them in. And then the, the folks at CNAS will, will filter them uh, uh, my way. Uh, uh, you've probably already done a bit of this. Uh, and you'll be doing, doing it more. Uh, in the months uh, months to come, uh, you're invited to speak to uh, uh, high school students or, or a group of ROTC cadets at a university. Uh, young uh, 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 young uh, female cadet uh, or uh, recruit uh, comes up to you um, on the side um, and says, "You know, those are really interesting answers. I'm looking forward to reading your book. What?" Number one piece of advice uh, or two, if you want to give two, uh, uh, would you give me? Because uh, uh, I really want to make this work. I really want to serve my country, um, uh, but but I know this comes with uh, uh, a different set of challenges than um, uh, than I than it would if I were a man. Uh, what would you have for him? Sure, um, I'll I'll go with the two the two answers option. So the the first and the foremost thing I would say is if, you know, almost everybody's got them, but if you've got issues that trip you up from your past, and some people have those at 18 and some people have those at 25, but um, solve as much as you can, uh, have resources to make yourself strong and make yourself secure in yourself uh, before anything else. And so what do I mean by that? Um, you know, if you've struggled with traumas in your past, if you've struggled with, I mean, it's, it's 2020, like there's, man, Gen Z wrestles with a lot of mental health types of things now, wrestles with a lot of family challenges now. If there is any of that in your past that might make you more prone um, to trauma in the future, like address it as soon as you can, whether formally or informally, through meditation, through talking with older friends, through mentorship, um, have those support systems in place. And I'd say that for anybody, like not just women, but um, you know, there's a, a study in, in 2014 published in the Journal of the American Medical Association in an all volunteer military, it is much more likely that people actually, especially men um, who have been traumatized will seek to join the military to gain power, which is totally the reason I joined. Um, and you know, if there is anything like that in your past, like absolutely address it, even though it may be the very thing that you're trying to escape, the sooner you hit that head on the better. Um, and the second thing that I would say, which kind of dovetails with that is develop a network and certainly you don't like develop a network of peers, right? Like you'll know, you know, folks, for, folks, I'm actually still friends with um, several of the women from my OCS platoon, uh, officer candidate school, uh, my platoon at the basic school. Um, four of us were, were roommates back in California and we all still get together at least once a year. It's pretty great. That is the network that even though you might not know it in the moment, um, they are going to help you through years later. 
Uh, even if these people are out of the military, okay, maybe your network is your friends back home and it's like you're talking to your best friend from high school and they're like, all right, just tell me what goes on. Every couple months, like, we're going to talk on the phone, give me a report. Like, have at least one person that you can tell anything to because you're going to need that support system no matter what. And again, this actually isn't gender-specific advice, but if you know you're part of a subset of people that's going to wrestle with more of these types of questions, um, both peers and also mentors. Uh, and not just like military mentors who you're like trying to further your career with, like life mentors, um, you know, old teachers. Uh, I, uh, my high school band director features prominently in the book and I'm, I'm pretty sure when I told her she was in it earlier this spring, she wasn't expecting that, but, uh, but yeah, no, she's been super cool. Um, and you know, but, but those folks, uh, surprisingly sometimes are going to be the types of folks that you feel like you can tell anything to and not be judged. And, uh, whether you know it or not now, you're, everybody's going to need at least one of those folks in their life. And actually, I, I think that advice holds no matter who you are. Very well said. Uh, I got two more uh, sure. two quick questions, it. and then, uh, then it's over, over to the audience. Uh, Fidelis, uh, what, the, you know, what, what does the title mean, and, and how did you land on it for a title? Sure. Um, well, how I land on it, actually, I haven't told this story publicly, but I might as well. The original title was Unbecoming, but then Honorado published a book with the same name last year, so, uh, oops. <laughs> but, um, but no, Fidelis, I mean, you know, so the Marine's motto is Semper Fidelis, and uh, that means always faithful. And, you know, uh, struggling to be faithful to oneself and one's moral code was something I really wrestled with. Um, you know, during, during my service and after, and even during the writing of the book, like whose story am I being faithful to? Am I being faithful to my own story? And I being faithful to my memories of my friends. Um, am I being faithful to the other people in the book? Uh, and you know, there's other themes of, of marital fidelity that run through the book too. But, um, I think that had enough meanings that I, I felt really good about using that as the title. And I actually think it's a, a better title for this book for sure, uh, than the original. So. I, I love it when you when you Thanks. when you told me uh, uh, you found it. I was like, "That's perfect." Uh, Thanks. Uh, uh, it it just fit. Uh, and what are you reading right now? Yeah. No. Absolutely. Um, so a few things. Uh, M. C. Armstrong's Mysteries of Haditha, which is out from Potomac Books, uh, it just came out. I think last week, two weeks ago, also. And that is about um, Haditha Dam, his embed there. So he was a civilian journalist who went and embedded with a couple of naval, uh, a team of Navy SEALs there, and um, discovered some things about the Haditha Dam and the burn pits while he was there. And it's also it's also got some memoir aspects. He wrestles with things back home, and it's a, a, a very emotionally open um, kind of story that you don't always see uh, from guys coming back from war. And so uh, the other one that I have read recently and loved is um, Abby Murray's Hail and Farewell, which is actually a book of poetry. She's a military spouse. And if you like digesting literature in short chunks, um, her poems are like being punched in the gut sometimes, and sometimes they're hilarious. And so I think that's a great little book. Um, I'm also very excited for a forthcoming book, uh, which is from Jerry Bell, and it's about the Golden 14. So uh, 14 first African-American women officers in the Navy, and she's doing a history nonfiction book. And that, I don't know if that comes out next year or the following year, but uh, yeah. Excellent, that sounds great. Uh, uh, Jerry, Jerry's, a, Jerry's a great writer and a friend. She's so I'm amazing. excited about that too. 
Yeah. All right. Uh, questions. Uh, first one is for uh, speaking of great writers and friends, uh, Katie Schultz, uh, uh, who uh, uh, asks as authors and as veterans, what common question do you get asked by well-meaning fans or friends and family that is rather actually uh, uh, a bit offensive or misinformed? In other words, what assumptions about authorship or veteran life or people making for better or worse that you wish were otherwise and why? Uh, okay, I think as a female veteran, I have been asked by well-meaning but completely inappropriate uh, acquaintances like, oh, so you were sexually assaulted, right? Like, no, nope. Like, this this is pre-book. This is just like when I was in grad school, like as a veteran, like making the assumption that all women veterans are the same or all of them have been victims of some kind uh, that all, you know. Um, so, yeah, not not that. Uh, though I know Katie would never ask that. Um, and yeah, or assuming that everybody who has served in the military has PTSD or has combat experience. Um, and many of us veteran writers write about that. There's a whole spectrum of experience in the military. That's kind of the whole point of Phil Clive's redeployment, right? Like not everybody goes to combat and everybody comes back with PTSD. Like, you know, there's many different types of ways to serve. Um, so I think really any assumptions at all. I, I don't know, Matt, if you get, you know, asked some different things. Uh, something that I've been dealing with maybe a bit more recently than I did a few years ago is, uh, I don't know. Uh, and again, I think it's well-intentioned. So, uh, you know, this, uh, I think that's the spirit of Katie's question. Uh, this idea that, well, what are you going to write right next? Right. Like, um, and you know, I probably thought this myself when I first, uh, came, you know, first came out with Kaboom. Well, I've done my war book, uh, real writers, uh, uh, write about other stuff. And I, 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 I've, I've written about other stuff. I like writing about other stuff, but you know, in this era of endless war um, of, you know, uh, gosh, this whole summer has been a, a, a huge reminder of, of how important it is. I think to have, have knowledgeable voices uh, that can speak uh, that have been to the edges and can, can speak about, uh, 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 you know, the war coming home. Right. And, and it's, it's been inspiring seeing uh, people that I know and people who are complete strangers writing passionately, angrily, uh, brilliantly about uh, what's happening in America, uh, that, you know, tactics and techniques that, uh, that, you know, we use in Iraq and Afghanistan. And, you know, what does that mean for us as a state of a republic? You know, these things are important. Um, so, you know, I, it's not like I make a conscious choice to, to, to keep writing about uh, uh, the global war on terror. Um, it, it's just, it's what keeps me up at night. Uh, it, it's what, it's what, uh, gets me up in the morning. That's, I, I'm not a morning person. Uh, I, I, but I have to be, you know, so I have to be pretty angry about something to, to get up and, and turn on that coffee machine. And, and a lot of times it is, it is tangent, you know, it's not necessarily, it's not about my, my own direct experience all that much anymore, but it is stuff that I, that I care about and I'm interested in partly because I'm a veteran, but, but a lot because I'm just, I'm a citizen and, and, and this, I think this stuff is important. And I, I don't even necessarily, you know, it's, it's great when people agree with me. Uh, we all want to be agreed with, but sure. more than anything, and, I, you know, we've talked about this before, you know, something I think that unifies so much of post-9-11, post quote-unquote, war literature is this just kind of this howl into the void uh, uh, to, to, the to the populace that this stuff really matters and it impacts oh. us all. This isn't, this isn't a niche thing. Um, and, and, you know, uh, uh, gosh, you know, this, this entire summer has been a stark, stark reminder of that. So uh, somewhere in there, I think I answered Katie's question. Uh, Absolutely. And, and you also managed to predict our entire dystopia for, with Empire City. So 
Congrats. Uh, yeah, when I'm finally right with a prediction. Right. <laughs> it's this one. Yeah, wonderful. Um, next question. Uh, what other mechanisms for positive change for communicating with civilians do you see in addition to writing? Um, sure. I mean, you know, there's all sorts of communication. Um, Team Rubicon does a really great job of, uh, of mixing people as volunteers. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I remember them being out in full force after Hurricane Sandy in New York. Um, both veteran, it's a, it's a veteran-led, veteran-run uh, volunteer organization, uh, kind of like the Red Cross, but because it's heavily, uh, it's military veteran-run, it's like kind of disaster relief oriented. So now that there's more natural disasters, uh, people volunteering together really puts everybody in the same boat, and that's been helpful. I mean, in addition to writing, you know, Matt and I sometimes get asked to be talking heads on, on various types of, you know, TV, radio types of things. Um, I feel like that's more of the broader kind of broadcasting uh, kinds of things, too. Um, and then teaching. Well, Matt, Matt has actually taught and I've, um, you know, participated in some workshops. But I think the types of workshops that bring people together, you know, studying literature, reading similar things, uh, just listening to each other's perspectives. I mean, I think some of the greatest parts of words after war um, were when the veterans and civilians would get together and like just share and listen to each other about how they were each viewing a, a body of work, whether it's a piece of literature, whether, you know, I mean, occasionally we'd, we'd have beers in the mellow pages library, um, our different reactions to the, uh, the, the smoke filled room. Um, but yeah, I, I think just even being in the same spaces and listening to the same things in each other can be helpful. Totally. Um, yeah, something I'd echo, and this is not an original thought of mine, but something that I think is is true and worth restating is there's so many ways to serve, you know, yeah. uh, that, uh, you know, there's a, there's kind of an ugly uh, veteran, a stereotype of a veteran in post 9-11 America that, you know, uh, works for some people, but like, do you really want to grandstand, grandstand the rest of your life because of three or four years uh, that you spent in your youth? Or, or, or do you want to continue giving back, uh, whether it's team, Ru team Rubicon or volunteering in a soup kitchen or running for your local school board? You know, I, my wife's a school teacher. She works way harder than I do as a writer. Like, it's not even, it's not even comparable. Um, it's kind of goofy to me that, that uh, there's a Veterans Day and Parade every year uh, that I, I can march in if, if I choose to. Um, uh, you know, and I've been out 10 years, you know? Um, so, you know, I, 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 you know, for some understandable reasons, uh, uh, veterans have been giving, given a platform, um, since 9-11. Uh, and I think it's important, uh, if you don't want to be a grand scander to use that platform to, to help prop up others that are doing good work in the community. Uh, that, you know, uh, doesn't take, doesn't, it's, there's, there's no harm in taking the shine away, uh, a little bit and, 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 you know, giving props to, to people who do good work, uh, here, here at home every day in and day out. Uh, oh, here's a different one. Uh, uh, what do you think about Trump's descriptions of veterans in the military as revealed in the Atlantic reporting? Yeah. I mean, I think that's ridiculous. <laughs> yeah. Um, I guess the, the only, uh, positive thing to come out of that was the duffel blog article of the uh, renaming the army navy game the suckers versus losers bowl but yeah i mean i think it just shows who he is as a person and a president and you know kind of sums it up i mean the guy's out for himself and no one else that's that's all i got there yeah uh 
not a fan personally. Um, I, you know, I would add, uh, like, like with so many other things, um, I think, uh, the president isn't, isn't the cause. He's just kind of a very loud, crass symptom. Honestly, let's be honest, plenty of people from his social class and station think that about people that serve. Uh, they're not stupid enough to say it. Uh, he said it. Uh, but, you know, he's not alone there. Um, what does that say about us uh, as a republic? Uh, that's, that's uh, you know, if, uh, if only certain people's sons and daughters are expected to, to serve in the military in a time of, of ever long war. Um, I think it's worth, I have my own answers to that uh, uh, that I'll spare you all from, but I think it's worth dwelling on, if nothing else. Yeah, it's uh, certainly an argument for national service. I go back of, of some of some kind, yeah. and there's many ways to serve. Like it doesn't always have to be military. There's plenty of things to, plenty of things to do. Sure. Uh, Teresa, was writing Fidelis healing uh, at all, or do you feel like you were not ready to write uh, until you'd processed uh, your experiences? Um, yeah. And then, uh, kind of a follow up to that. Um, where does someone get started with publishing as a former Marine? Sure. Um, so I guess for the first question, uh, it took me some time to even be ready to let that story out, like onto a computer screen, like even just privately my own, um, that took a long time, uh, probably you know, five, seven years, something like that. And then the writing of the book itself took another seven years. Um, so during that time, you know, yes, writing the words on the page was uh, cathartic in parts when I was drafting. And then by the time I was doing the work of those years of revision and the, the years of draft after draft, and then even trying to sell it and get it published, um, then it was just like making art. Like the, the first draft was definitely not ready for prime time, not ready for consumption. There was lots of emotional growth in, in getting that out. Um, at the same time, you know, it's been 14 years since I served, so I'm older now. I, I have grown by dint of the fact that I'm 14 years older than I was when I was in the Marine Corps. Uh, so part of that is just like life experience and growth. But yeah, it, it was helpful. Um, and man, where do, okay, so there's many ways to start. Uh, and assuming you, you have work that you're working on or, or work that you're writing, or even if you don't, you know, finding some sort of writing workshop is a way to start, whether it's veterans or not. My first one was an online workshop hosted by the Gotham Writers Workshop. Um, they're based in New York, but it doesn't matter because everything's virtual now. And uh, yeah, so even just finding something, finding a group of people to like bounce your writing off of. Um, and then in terms of getting it published, you know, there's a few different routes to doing that too. There's military oriented places where you can first pitch short pieces, you can get them noticed, and then you can build a platform. Um, I'm putting this in a few sentences, but clearly this can take years. And, uh, you know, there's, if you have something that you can pitch to agents, like you can do that. There's websites where there's lists of agent names and how to contact them. Um, and then, um, you know, I don't know, Matt, uh, you're more famous than me. So do you want to add some stuff? <laughs> uh, wow. Uh, that's, uh, oh, sorry. <laughs> No, it's, 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 uh, de uh, delightfully untrue, but, uh, uh, yeah, no, I think, I think that's, it's, it's so much of it is trial and error. And, um, you know, sometimes, uh, I think, uh, uh, some aspiring go-getters think there's some kind of like panacea out there. There's some kind of magic question or magic, you know, especially coming out of the military. A lot of folks think there's some kind of connection that, that is, that is gonna, that is gonna happen. And I'm not gonna pretend 
those things don't happen, but you know, so much of it is just putting in the grinding work of failing over and over and over again and getting rejections um, uh, and, and then building and building relationships. You know, a number of my, my relationships with ed, uh, editors um, started years ago when they were, you know, at small places, right? Um, you know, a, 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 an editor we, uh, we've both written for um, uh, at the New York Times, Lauren Katzenberg, uh, we both wrote for her when she was at Task and Purpose, right? Which is, a, which is one of the military-oriented or, uh, sites um, that, you, that you mentioned. Um, it, it's, I, I know this sounds teacherly, uh, but it, uh, focusing on the work rather than the result is, is so vital uh, uh, in, in that transition. Um, because it, it just frees you to uh, uh, care about what actually matters and what will actually resonate and why you're interested in doing this in the first place. Uh, so, um, you know, reaching, reaching out to, uh, I, I've always found that the veteran writer community, or the war writer community, uh, to include civilians who write about the subject, is very, is, is very supportive and, and pretty close-knit. Um, you know, people will point you in the right direction. But, um, you know, nobody's, nobody's going to do the work but you. Nobody's ever going to care as much as you do. And uh, uh, that can be uh, a sobering realization, but it can also be very freeing, I think. Yeah. Uh, don't give Tom Cotton a platform. That's, that's a comment, but a funny one. Uh, uh, let's see. Um, Teresa, it sounds like you found some pers uh, uh, personal uh, catharsis and resolution in the writing of your book. If you're willing to share, I'm curious if, if and how that has changed the choices uh, you make and the life you are building? Yeah. Um, no, that's, that's a good question. Uh, well, I mean, the book ends, even the ending is, is years ago by now. So, so sure. This is a, a portrait of me in my late twenties. Um, so don't, don't worry. Folks get worried when they read it. Uh, don't worry. Um, but no, I mean, I think, and a lot of us, you know, go through this growth phase too. I probably many, many, maybe all like young women. It's it's amazing how many folks I spoke I've spoken with um, after I published my first article, which is like maybe an eight hundred word version of Fidelis, uh, and it was years ago. And man, to get one's first ever byline in the New York Times is quite the way to go public with this story. But there it is, um, and uh, you know, it's kind of like all right, well, let's. Let's rip that Band-Aid off. Um, you know, but the most amazing thing was uh, was how many women I had known in the Marine Corps um, or, you know, just known as peers coming up to me and saying, like, hey, you know, I read your story. Uh, you're not the only one, like, that that had some sort of experience like this or that's wrestling with these themes or these, these themes of, like, worth and power and how that relates to, like, coming of age as a woman. Um, and yeah, it's, it's taken a lot of personal growth to do that. Uh, but I'm kind of 180 and I cope with life 180 degrees differently than I did when I was in my twenties. So like, you know, I meditate now every morning, like personal choices. I, I lead a fairly undramatic life these days, if I do say so. Um, so yeah, I pretty gotten a lot more relaxed there. Um, but thanks. Thanks for asking. Well, yeah, and you know something you, you said uh, in our interview for the uh, the Daily Beast that struck me as as so wise is, um, in order to write this, you had to find the time and space to give your younger self the some generosity to yeah. to, uh, to understand that as a young person, of course you're going to make mistakes, and uh, because it helped form who you are, uh, and yeah, that that that's 
an ongoing thing for us all, but especially for writers who are going to write, uh, uh, write to the bone, uh, uh, like this to, to, to tell, to tell something straight and to tell it true. Uh, yeah, Com compassion is not a thing that Marines in general often give themselves. So that was like a learned skill. But yeah, you're right. Like having compassion for one's younger self uh, is a necessary thing for any memoirist. So, yeah. uh, a couple more questions. Sure. Um, and, then, uh, and then you're off the hook. Uh, uh, from Joe Stanek, uh, congrats, Teresa. Uh, did you read anything over the years you were writing uh, that changed the story while it was in progress? Oh, man. Um, no, I mean, hi, Joe. Uh, <laughs> I guess not so much reading, but, you know, experiencing. I mean, the life experiences I had would, would maybe change a lens on the story. In terms of literary influences, uh, maybe this, I read this before the writing of it, but I think it really affected the story. Um, all right, so two things. One, during the writing of it, I read uh, Mary Carr's The Liar's Club, which is kind of canon for any memoirist, and it's really, really good and just, you know, um, taught by example a lot about how to dilate that time. And, you know, you'd be right in the middle of writing a scene and then being like, what I didn't know then was X, Y, Z, and then you flash forward and, and that can really wrap around a story. So that influenced me quite a bit um, in the writing of it. But the book, uh, interestingly, that I, I saw the movie and read even before I wrote it, but I found emotionally resonated the most um, with the story itself was Brokeback Mountain. Now, I wish I could write like Annie Prue because she's a flipping genius and I love her prose, um, but I can't. So sorry, guys, you get the book you get. But like just that feeling of having the most intense experience you've ever had in your entire life, you know, pressing pause on your life, going, having that experience and coming back home off the mountain figuratively and pressing play again and then looking at the following decades and being like, oh, crap, like, what do I do now? How do I get that back? And then even having hope of maybe one day potentially getting that back. Um, that emotionally was what I felt back then, and that resonated the most with me. So I'd say that, you know, spiritually affected the writing of this book. Um, I hope that's a decent enough answer for you, oh, Joe. Sure, that's excellent. <laughs> um, this is kind of a, a, a good variant of, of a question I asked, but it, um, it's, it's different enough. I think it's worth, worth posing. Uh, if you could go back in time and stand in front of your OCS platoon right now and look at those young, bright eyes, highly motivated and wet behind the ears, soon to be officers, what would you choose to talk to them about? What advice would you give and why? Sure. Um, you know, I, I think it is a similar, a similar answer. I gave you Matt a little bit earlier, but like, you know, it's OCS, everybody's stressed out. Uh, I know you're all wrestling with something and you're trying not to think about it. And you've been trying not to think about it for the past six weeks here or 12 weeks here, however long it's been. But you, when you go back, go back and deal with it, whether that's dealing with it, you know, spiritually by, going to therapy or working it out in meditation or working it out with your clergy person, like whatever you're wrestling with internally that you're trying to fight. If you're trying to fight anything by joining the military, go deal with it now. And, you know, because wait, if you don't in three years when you're in and you're a lieutenant, it's going to come back to bite you. Um, you know, that and God, enjoy the body you have in your early 20s when you have it. Because man, once things start breaking, <laughs> it's rough. But, but people always used to stand in front of us, you know, we'd have these like generals and colonels and stuff stand in front of us and be like, I envy you young lieutenants. And I would never say that to them. Like, are you kidding me? They've been up since four in the morning. Like what? Do I want to get yelled at all day? No, this sucks. They're going to be out in the rain later digging a fighting hole. Why would I want that? Um, so I feel like as an older person, you always forget, you know, 
all of the, the stuff that stresses you out when you're younger. Uh, so I wouldn't say that, but, um, but just really be honest with yourself, whatever you are experiencing and find those support networks. You know, the, the people, you know, the women to your left and to your right, right now, like, believe it or not, you're going to have to depend on them again in a couple of years in the fleet and, you know, play well with others because if you don't, it's just going to come back to bite you too. So. hundred percent. Yeah. Not that I was ever career material, but uh, I was always struck when a major or Lieutenant Colonel would be like, Oh, enjoy it while you can. Being a platoon leader is, is the best, best job you'll have in the army. I was, I was, I was like, <laughs> why the hell would I want to stay in? <laughs> <laughs> exactly. It's like, great. Do you want to get my sergeant who got drunk in Tijuana last night? Cause you can make that drive. Sir. That. <laughs> like, yeah. Yeah, yeah, exactly. It's like, you want to talk to my troops who went cage fighting last weekend? Cause that's cool. <laughs> yeah. Um, last question. And I think it's a good one because I think it, it, it uh, gives you an opportunity to kind of blend these two worlds uh, that we've hopefully brought together this evening um, of the, you know, kind of crafty writing world, um, uh, you know, but also kind of the, uh, the hard boiled uh, Marine, Marine world that, that shapes you. Um, how did you decide what was an impo uh, important in a scene for Fidelis and uh, uh, which scene, if you're trapped in an, if you were trapped in an elevator, uh, sp scene specific, would you would you hearken uh, 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 or bring up to to uh, let somebody know what Fidelis is about? Okay, those are two different questions. What was the first one? <laughs> they are two different questions. Uh, 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 the second one was mine, is why. The I second think. one is the elevator. Okay, gotcha. Uh, uh, how do you decide what is important in a scene in okay. general, and then gotcha. what what scene in oh, particular? Man do you think best captures it's the elevator pitch? The okay. spirit, well, just the spirit of Fidelis more than anything. Okay. Um, man, deciding what's important in a scene is kind of by gut. It's one of those ineffable things. That, it's a terrible answer, but I think, you know, hopefully Matt will support me here. It's, it's one of those enough, like, you know, like it resonates emotionally with you. Um, you know, you just, the, the combination of the words and the feeling you get reading them is you're like, I have to keep that. And sometimes you'll cut, specific words um, and make it so it's spare. But, um, you know, if you can tell people things by the actions that somebody is taking, uh, you know, yeah, that's, that's a, a highly emotionally like charged thing for me. So really whatever's going to give me an emotional charge from keeping it in the scene that I keep. Um, there, there were many things in the book that wound up being extraneous that will never see the light of day. So maybe when I'm 90, I'll, I'll publish the unedited version. Uh, and then the elevator pitch scene of Fidelis, boy, um, you know, that's a tough one, Matt. Uh, yeah, probably something encapsulating, man, don't hold me to this. Cause if I do more events, I'm probably going to say different scenes. Um, probably something in Iraq when I'm trying to fit in. You know, there's some scenes, and this is a weird one, and maybe it's even forgettable, but there's some scenes when I'm, I'm hanging out with the rest of the company in Iraq, and I'm like giving, giving the evening brief, or hanging out before the evening brief, which was like, you know, the 20 minutes a day where like, finally, we could have maybe a little bit of downtime, and I'm like, you know, playing baseball with the gunny, or, you know, wrestling with folks, and it's just like the trying to fit in and doing that as best you can while still trying to claim some kind of power and some kind of identity. And all the while knowing, like, you're kind of like the duck, like, on the surface, all right, she's good to go, everything looks placid. And all the while knowing underneath, you know, you're, you're paddling like hell just to, like, look normal. Um, 
that's the scene I'm going to pick tonight. Uh, shameless plug for Monday night, different events. So if somebody wants to ask me again, maybe I'll pick a different one, but yeah. No, I, I think that works because it's, uh, you know, I think that uh, elicits uh, any junior leader's experience, in, sure. both in the military and out, uh, officer sure. or enlisted, right? Um, yeah. Trying to do right by, by your Marines or your soldiers uh, that you're in charge with, of, but also dealing with, with hire, whatever hire, you know, whether hire is a section or a platoon or a company or whatever. And, and you know, kind of that hierarchical structure that, that makes the machine run but uh, puts in, you know, individuals in, in constant uh, uh, tense, situ uh, tense, strange situations. So no, I, I think that's well-selected. Thanks. So. Well, everybody, uh, thanks so much for joining us. If you haven't already, oh, order you. and read Fidelis. Uh, it's an excellent book. It uh, uh, Teresa, it was great to be in conversation with you this yeah. evening. And, and congratulations too, again on a fantastic, fantastic book. Thank you. Thanks so much. I just want to take a moment to thank Matt for taking his time this evening to interview Teresa. I think you did a wonderful job asking some really interesting questions and moderating those that came in from uh, our participants as well. Teresa, thank you so much for showing up and answering so, um, so honestly and being just really transparent and open with who you are and talking about such wide-ranging topics, including the process of writing and the craft side of things, um, digging into politics, really being willing to go there on such a, a wide array of issues. It was really fascinating discussion, and I'm incredibly grateful that we were able to host you and that everyone was able to listen. We got a lot of fantastic questions from um, audience members in a couple of different formats. I know we didn't have time to get to all of them tonight, so I dropped both of your Twitter handles into the chat for panelists, I'm sorry, for attendees to see. And uh, I hope everyone who is listening will go ahead and follow Teresa and Matt. We will send the questions over to Teresa. So if there are any that she thinks are super interesting, she may choose to answer them on Twitter. So follow her so that you can see if your missed question gets answered on Twitter for everyone to see. We are recording this session and we'll release it as a podcast. So if there's something that you wanted to listen to more carefully, or if you thought it was so exciting that you really wanna share it with your friends, please stay tuned for that as well and um, be, be ready to help push that out. Uh, again, wanna plug Bronx River Books. We will, um, yep, Emma has reposted that in the chat. So you can go there if you want to order a copy of Fidelis for yourself from the partner that supported this this evening. And um, once again, Matt, Teresa, thank you so much. This has been a fascinating conversation. I'm very, very grateful that we were able to host you. And it's been uh, so interesting. I can't wait to read more from both of you and hopefully hear you both in conversation again sometime in the future. Thanks and have a great evening. Thank you so Bye. much. Thanks. Bye, Fidelis. <laughs> Thanks, everybody. You've been listening to CNAS Live. To receive invitations to future public events and to learn more about our experts' work, visit cnas.org join. You can also connect with us on Twitter and Facebook. Thanks for listening.